Would you pray with me as we now turn to God's Word? God, it's been a good day to be together with one another, lifting our voices to you, God, hearing what you are up to in our world, God, joining our hearts in prayer that you would move and bring about your good purposes in the world. And now, God, we come to hear from you in your word. And, Lord, we do pray. We know that you will speak to us as we, as we open our hearts, our ears, our minds to what you have to say to us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. God's mission is that the whole earth would be filled with His glory. And this is the theme of our sermon series over the next few months. We're walking through the narrative of the biblical story and considering how God is at work and as He calls us to be at work to fill the earth with the knowledge of Him so that all of creation would worship Him and fill the earth with His glory. We spent the first few weeks in the first couple chapters of Genesis, and these foundational chapters in Scripture teach us a lot about God and His purposes for creation. And last week we talked about human beings as male and female, who were called to be fruitful and multiply, multiply and to fill the earth. This is done through male and female coming together in marriage. A second important aspect of our human life that the early chapter of Genesis addresses is the topic of work. Of work. In these early chapters in Genesis, we read that God works, and then on the seventh day, He rests. We read that when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, He puts them there, not simply to have some never-ending vacation in paradise, but He puts them there to work. When we think about being made in the image of God, there are many implications about what it means to be in the image of God, but it's very clear in the early book of Genesis that one thing it means, one thing it reflects, is that we were made to do good work. One of the most important things that we need to wrestle with as disciples of Jesus is how our faith and commitment to Jesus Christ informs and empowers our work, our jobs. If for no other reason, then we spend such a significant portion of our time in our jobs. There are a lot of reasons why we need to consider our jobs in light of our faith. But I think the most basic reason is we spend so much of our time in our energy, in our resources, in our work. So what does God have to do with this aspect of my life? What does He say about it? How do I live in response to Him? What is God's plan for us and our work. So this morning we're going to start by taking again a look at the book of Genesis. I would encourage you to to turn there to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and look at what these early chapters say about work. Secondly, we're going to take uh, talk about some practical implications about what the Christian message is about work. And then finally, we're going to look at the important rhythm that God has called us to have, this rhythm of six days of work in a day of rest. So let's begin in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 says, Then God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, 
over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In these verses, we hear the twin task that God gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. As we talked about this last week, as we talked about marriage and God's purposes for marriage and sex. And the second task was to subdue the earth, to work on the earth, to be stewards of the creation that God has made. And in Genesis chapter 2, we get a second, more detailed account of God's creations of human beings and his plans and his purposes for them. In Genesis chapter 2, it begins by describing the place where God would put Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. In these verses, we have a description of the earth before human beings came to be on it. And there's not much to look at here. The earth is described as barren, And it's kind of a swampy mess. And we have two reasons for this. First, because God has not yet caused the cycle of rain to begin. And also because Genesis says there were no human beings there yet to work the ground. But in one spot, as the Genesis 2 story continues, in one spot, in one area of this barren earth, God creates a garden. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. Its winds to the entire land of Havalah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So the picture of the earth at this time that we have in the, is that in the middle of this world, that this world that was barren and unfruitful, this, this world where there was uh, water all over the surface of the earth, but it was just kind of uh, there, and there was uh, no place for that water to go. It just seems like it was a swamp. The, um, the field, there was no plant of the field that had yet sprung up, for God had not sent rain on the earth. But in the middle of all of that, God created a garden, the Garden of Eden, as a place of beauty in orderliness and fruitfulness. And God placed Adam and Eve there to enjoy it and to work it. And this is very important. 
to be the place where Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God. In Genesis 3, it says that God will come to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. The Garden of Eden was the unique place of God's presence on the earth. It was the place where Adam and Eve would enjoy God's presence. Throughout the Bible, as we read through the scriptures, the place of God's unique presence is in the tabernacle and in the temple. And throughout the Old Testament, God's unique presence is located in those places, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And later, after Pentecost, after God sends his spirit into the world, God is said to dwell with his people. And we, his people, are called what? A temple of the Holy Spirit, a place of God's presence. In the description of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, there are parallels to the description of the temple and the tabernacle in other parts of the Old Testament. The Garden of Eden is to be understood as the first temple. Let me give you a few quick examples of this. Um, I promise uh, this very much relates to our topic of faith and work. Very much relates to our topic, even it might not be immediately obvious why. First, as I said already, the Garden of Eden in Genesis is the place of God's presence with his people. Adam and Eve enjoyed God's unmediated personal presence in the garden. Genesis 3 said that God came into the garden and walked in it. The description of God literally says that God walked to and fro in the garden. And this phrase, this God walking to and fro, is the same term that is used to describe God's presence in activity in the temple and in the tabernacle in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and also in 2 Samuel. The Garden of Eden, like the tabernacle and the temple later, were the unique place of God's presence on the earth. A second reference to the temple in Genesis is that Genesis 3, after the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They are exiled from that place of God's unique presence. And Genesis tells us that two cherubim, two celestial beings, are placed at the entrance of the garden to guard it. Well, later on in the temple, at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, in the very center of the temple, God instructed Solomon to build two cherubim that would stand at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. The third reference in Genesis to the temple is the work that Adam and Eve were called to do there in the garden. They were told to work it and to take care of it. These words, to work it and to take care of it, describe The exact activities of the priests in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. In Numbers and Deuteronomy, it says that the priests were to work and to take care of the temple. And my point is this. In the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden is more than simply a pretty piece of land that God gave to Adam and Eve to live in and to enjoy. The Garden of Eden was much more than that. The Garden of Eden is the first temple It's intended to be understood as the unique place where Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God. And so as Adam and Eve lived in the garden in obedience to God and in communion with him and in good and right relationship with one another, they were living lives of worship. They enjoyed his presence moment by moment. They worked and took care of this garden as an act of worship to God who was there present with him. So this garden of Eden was a garden temple, a place of God's presence where God and human beings lived together, where creation flourished under God's care and under humanity's work. 
But if you remember, the rest of the planet, as described in verses 4 through 7, is barren and unfruitful because God had not yet sent rain and because there was no man to work on it. Verses 4 and 5 again. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. In these verses, we see that the earth, the entire earth, was not yet, had not yet become what God intended it to be. There were not plants of the field because there was no man to work the ground. The waters that were on the earth were not yet suitable for helping food grow because there was no man to work the ground and to create irrigation for the water to go and to order to be useful places for plants to grow. In these first few verses of Genesis 2, we get this hint, this hint that God has designed his creation in such a way that the work of human beings was essential to make it what it was supposed to be. God certainly could have designed the world in another way, but God designed the world in such a way that our work would give shape to God's creation, that our work would bring order and fruitfulness to God's creation. So just as God in Genesis chapter 1 brought order out of the chaos by his speech and by his work, in a similar way, our work would, in a smaller but a very real way, do the same, bring order into this chaos that was around the garden. Again, God could have designed the world a different way, but this is one of the great gifts of being made in the image of God. He has created us as human beings with the capacity to put our minds to good use, to plan and to prepare and to dream about the way that things could be, and then to use our speech to communicate and to collaborate and to work together, and then to use our bodies and our hands and our effort to bring about things in the world that did not exist before. Whether that be a work of art or a garden or a business or a new home, we have been given this ability to work and to create and to shape the world that God created in the ways that we desire. And this is what it means for us to be culture makers, to create works of art and to be a part of business and commerce and agriculture. God has made us with the ability to join together and to collaborate and to communicate and to work together to make an impact on God's creation and to create culture. So Adam and Eve were called to use these God-given capacities, these aspects of our human life that are part of being made in the image of God. We were given these capacities so that our work would bring order and beauty and fruitfulness to God's creation. So that our work would be an act of worship where we join with God in his purposes for his creation. Consider again the commands that God gave to human beings to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. The command there given by God is that they and their descendants were to fill the whole earth and to subdue it. God's original design and purposes for human beings before the fall, before sin ever entered into the world was this. That as human beings filled the earth, as their population grew outside the boundaries of the garden, they were to join with God in making the whole earth to be like the garden. They were to make the whole earth a place of order and fruitfulness so that their work would glorify and honor and worship God. 
Through our filling the earth and through our work, human beings were to extend the boundaries of the garden and make not only the garden, but the whole earth a place where God's image bearers give praise and worship and glory to God. This gives even more meaning to the book of Revelation when it says that one day that we will be a kingdom of priests who reign on the earth. Those who work and take care of God's good world. We are given the calling to enter into the places of our own world and to make them places of worship to God as his priests on the earth. Now we're going to see very quickly that humanity failed to live up to this calling. Humanity fails to carry out this mandate to fill the earth with the praise and the worship of God. And instead, over and over and over again, they rebel against their creator. And they create cultures that are opposed to him. That give honor and worship to created things other than God. But we see in Genesis that God's creation is good. And it is good because it is intended by God to be the place where human beings worship Him with all of their lives. With their words, with their hearts, and with their work. This is Genesis' view of God's purposes for our work. That we would fill the earth with good human work that gives honor and praise and glory to God, our Creator. Now, I want us to think for a bit, what kind of work gives praise and honor and glory to God? What does your faith in God, your commitment to Jesus Christ, have to do with your 30 or 40 or 50 or maybe 60 hours that you work each week in your job? Well, there are two things today that I want to say about a Christian view of work. There are lots of things that I could say, and this was a very difficult sermon to prepare because there was lots of things that I wanted to say. Um, that we'll have to wait for a future sermon, I think. But the first thing is this, that your work is one aspect of your worship to God. And secondly, that a Christian view of work puts our work in its proper place in our lives. Your work is one aspect of your worship to God. And secondly, that a Christian view of work puts work in its proper place in our lives. It's very easy to think that the work that we do from Monday to Friday is really only marginally important, and that the really, really, really important things that we do in our lives, you know, the work that God wants us to do is churchy-type work. Martin Luther once said, Truly good works are those that flow from faith. The works of monks and priests, I would say preachers, Differ no whit in the sight of God from the works of the farmer toiling in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, as all works are measured before God by faith alone. It's important for all of you to remember that it is not only pastors or missionaries or campus pastors or other people who are sent in a very formal ministry way. That we are not the only ones who are called to be in some sort of Christian ministry and to understand that our lives are, and our jobs even, are a calling from God. All Christians are called and are given the privilege of doing their work in a way that honors God. Most of you in here do not work in full-time professional ministry, and it's important for you to remember that as you do your work in faith, in faith that God is with you, present with you, 
in faith and as you do it in a spirit of prayer and thanksgiving to God for giving you the resources and the skills and the ability to do your job, that as you do those things, that you are doing a spiritual work, a work that can give praise and honor to God. And in the same way, those of you who are in ministry, who do some kind of very formal ministry, it's important for us to remember that the inverse is also true. That just because we do work that looks spiritual, that looks very churchy, it does not mean automatically that God is glorified in it. Unless we too go about our work in prayer and in faith and in thanksgiving, it does not glorify God. The calling of Adam and Eve in the garden was to be gardeners, <laughs> to work and to take care of this garden. And, and this, this work of a gardener becomes then a paradigm or an image or a metaphor of all work that human beings are called to do. What a gardener does is he takes the raw material of God's creation that God has given and he takes it and he arranges it and he uses it in such a way that brings about something that can be useful to human beings. An artist does this with colors and with paints. An artist takes paints and he arranges it, puts it into order and makes something that reflects truth and beauty, we hope. A musician does this with sound. She, she takes sounds and she arranges them in such a way in order to reflect something beautiful. A business person does this with people and with machines and with money, arranges them and orders them in such a way to bring about something that did not exist before. And God has created the world in such a way that all of these various types of work that we do in the world are right and necessary and good for human life and human flourishing. And if they are done in faith, when they are done in thanksgiving, they are good in the eyes of God. They are fulfilling God's plans and purposes for humanity. And I think that we have missed this in the church. I think we very easily compartmentalize our lives into our spiritual life over here, our work life over here, our home life over here. We don't do this on purpose, I don't think, but it's very easy for us to do. Very easy for us to get, forget that God's purposes for humanity, God's purposes for Adam and Eve were to do their work in the garden in the presence of God. And so as we enter into our work in the world, we are called to remember that we do our work with God and in his presence. came across a great quote from Dorothy Sayers this past week about the importance of work, and I want to read it to you. She says this, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments, and then is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned into purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. But is it really astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of our life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to telling him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the first demand that his religion makes upon him 
is that he should make good tables. Your faith, your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your commitment to following him does not begin and end when you come here on Sundays or when you are doing your daily devotionals throughout the week or when you are doing things that look spiritual or churchy. Your commitment to Jesus is lived out in the work that you do. Your work and your faith are not separate. Your faith informs, or at least can inform your work. And your work can be a way that you express your faith by doing it in such a way that honors God. You honor God by doing your work excellently, even when your boss isn't watching. By doing your work in a spirit of prayer and thanksgiving. By doing your work in a way that you are acknowledging that the work that you do, however small and menial you may think that it is, that the work that you are doing is making a contribution to human life in the world. Sayers was spot on in saying that if we compartmentalize these two areas of life, then eventually work in the world, as she said, is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. The world needs Christians to enter into their workplaces as men and women who live out their lives at work informed by the values of their faith and their commitment to Jesus. Jesus told us that we are the salt of the earth. Salt was a preservative. Our presence in the world, in your workplace, living out our faith in the workplace is a way to keep the world from being as evil as it otherwise might be. When we begin to see our faith only lived out when we're doing outwardly religious things by praying or singing or going to church or whatever it might be, if we only see our faith as involved, as involved there, then we lose our saltiness, our preservative effect in the world. You know, people talk about, uh, have often said to me over the, the 10 years or so that I've been a pastor, that, Pastor, we know you have such a hard job. And, of course, sometimes that it is. But you all are the ones that are on the front lines. You all are the ones that every single day enter into your workplaces where demands are placed on you by bosses who do not care about anything but the bottom line. You are, are in places where you're asked to do things that may be unethical and that challenge your faith, and you are called in those places to stand. You're surrounded by people all week who do not know God or love him and who are against him and may be against you. It is your job that is hard. I get to be with you all most of the week and with my books. (laughs) You all are on the front lines. I pray for you. I really do. I pray that you would be people of faith in the workplace. And I pray also that God would increase your influence in your job and in your workplace so that you will have a greater impact there. The second thing I want to say about work today is that a Christian view of work puts work in its proper place in our lives. One of the many great benefits of the work of Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers is the way that it puts work and works in the proper place in our lives. We heard earlier the high value that Martin Luther placed on the work of every person, not only on the priest or the monk or the preacher, but on the farmer and the homemaker as well. All people, the Protestant Reformation said, are called by God to do good work in the world. This is one of the great gifts of the Reformation But they also reminded us that our works are not what saves us. 
And by saved, certainly they meant our eternal salvation. But they also reminded us in their teaching that the work that we do in the world is not ultimately what sustains us or ultimately what gives us meaning and purpose and significance. We are not people who are defined by our work, defined by what we do. We are defined first by our relationship to God. It is very tempting to define ourselves by the work that we do. One of the first questions that we certainly ask each other is, what do you do? What is your job? And we often then can categorize people in certain ways by the job that they do. And we identify and define ourselves very often by our job. Our job is important to the world, and when done in faith, can bring glory and honor to God and be one of the means by which we worship Him in our lives. But your job is not what defines you as a person. It is not what gives you value. You have value because you are a person who God created in His image, and you are a person for whom Jesus died. And so our work is relative to the work that God has done for us. Understanding ourselves as people who have been saved by the mercy of Christ, shown to us on the cross, puts our work in its proper perspective. It gives it dignity, and at the very same time, it enables us to be people who are not defined first by what we do, but by who we are in the eyes of God. last thing I want to talk about today is the importance of a Christian view of rest. In addition to work, we are also called as God's people to be people of rest. Returning to the book of Genesis, we remember that God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. Part of being made in the image of God is working, and another part of being made in the image of God is resting. At the beginning of creation, God established a rhythm of six days of work and a day of rest. God gave this to us, gave this as a gift to us, the Sabbath day, and told us to rest from our work. In fact, it was one of the Ten Commandments, one of the ten most important things that we should do or should not do. God has said that we should rest on the Sabbath. Now, we know that in Jesus' ministry that he challenged the Pharisees for what they had turned the Sabbath day into. They had created created all sorts of rules and regulations for what you could do and what you could not do on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day itself became a burden for people and not a blessing. Now, one of the things that I love most about this church, as I've now been here for uh, getting close to a year, there are so many many of you who respond to God, who are eager to serve Him, who are eager and willing to give much of your time and energy living for God. And that is a great part of being a part of this church. But I want to remind us today as Broadway, as people who are actively seeking ways to serve God, that we're not only called to live for God, not only called to expend our lives for Him, but we're also called to live all of our lives with Him, to trust Him, to enjoy Him, and to enjoy the gifts that He has given to us. And this trust and this enjoyment in God is expressed in our willingness to stop from our work and to rest. And I think that this is what the teaching of the Sabbath really means to us. There's two different times in the Bible that the Ten Commandments are given to the Israelites. One is in the book of Exodus and one in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And in these two readings of the Ten Commandments, the commandment to take the Sabbath is given. And then after that, the reason for the Sabbath, the rationale for the Sabbath, the importance of the Sabbath is given. And in both, in these two different accounts of the Ten Commandments, there are two very different reasons for why God gave us the Sabbath. The first is in Exodus chapter 20. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. Exodus 20 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. This is the rationale. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you and anyone else in your household shall do no work. And then here is the reason. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Did you hear the difference? In Exodus, the reason for the Sabbath is God's pattern in creation. And in Deuteronomy, the reason for the Sabbath is God's work of salvation in the Exodus. The Sabbath day is a reminder in both of these ways that the world does not depend on us and that our salvation does not depend on us. The world does not depend on you and your work. If you go a day without working, the sun still rises. (laughs) The sun still sets. God and the world are just fine without you. And in Exodus, or in Deuteronomy chapter 5, your salvation does not depend on you. Stopping and resting on the Sabbath day was a day to remember that our salvation does not depend on us but depends on the work of another. And so our willingness to rest, to not always be working for God, but instead to simply stop and be with God by resting, is an expression of our belief in our trust, in our Creator and in our Savior. And so I encourage you in your life to practice a day of rest. A day where you commit to not seek to be productive, by not seeking to get stuff done, but a day each week that you set aside for enjoying God and His good gifts to you. Some may disagree with me on this, but what day of the week I think is less important than that you do it. Again, not out of a sense of obligation or legalism, but out of joyful obedience and as a gift And as a reminder that your life does not depend on you. God's perspective on work, I think, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It tells us that our work is given by God and that it is important to God. 
We as human beings were created to work. We were created to enter into the world and to create things that give honor and glory to God, to enter into our own places and communities that are outside of the garden, and to seek to make them places and communities that give God glory, that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. The Christian view of work is that our work is valuable to God, that there is dignity in our work not only as a means to some other end, but that our work itself can be an act of worship to God. And at the same time that God honors the work that we do and that he calls us to do, at the same time God ensures that our work is put into its proper perspective, that it does not become the defining thing in our life. Our work is not what defines us. It's not what gives us ultimate meaning and purpose. Meaning, purpose, Significance, identity is found in our relationship to God who created us in his image and in God who sent his son Jesus to do the good work of dying for us so that we can live. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a purpose in the world. We are not machines or robots, but that you have given us real decision and agency in our lives. You've given us the ability through our minds and our work and our speech to bring about new things. And so God, I pray that my brothers and sisters that are here today that enter into their schools and their workplaces, in their neighborhoods and in hospitals, in all these other various areas of our quote-unquote secular world, God, I pray that you would empower them to do the work that you've called them to do there. Lord, I pray that they would remember that you are present with them each and every moment. God, I pray that you would encourage them in that place. I pray, God, that you would increase their influence among people and in their jobs so that they may have a salty effect on their workplace. God, and we thank you that even though you've given us this purpose, this this work to do, that this work doesn't define us that we stand before you as those who you've created and who you love and who you saved. God, thank you that this is the first place where we stand. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.